Um, okay, so we haven't met. My name is Derek, campus pastor of RUF uh, in my 11th year. And uh, this semester we are working our way through the book of Acts. Acts is a, a continuation of Luke, the historian's telling of the work of Jesus. Uh, the book of Luke details his work while he was living uh, up until his death and resurrection. And when Luke begins the book of Acts, he tells us that this is the account of Jesus' ongoing work. That even though he's ascended to the Father, he's continuing to work. Which is a bit mind-blowing. But we see it happen in chapter 2. Amazing things happen. Uh, the, the, the little community goes from 120 to uh, well over 3,000 in a day because Jesus is at work. And we saw last week that what he's doing is making a beautiful community, his church. And how that thing is marked by all the love uh, that God has. But it raises a question. Okay, you're, you're busy building the church, that's great. But what about the world? Do you still care about the world? This broken, messed up place. Jesus, are you still going to work in this broken world? And we're going to see today that even though Jesus is the king at God's right hand, he's still a, he's a, he's a servant. That's the text word. It's crazy. He's a servant who's at work restoring what's broken. Okay, I'm going to read Acts chapter 3. It's a bit of a longer text, but uh, you can sit in class for 55 minutes. You can do this. All right, Acts 3, 1 to 26. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him, you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
listen to him and whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also have proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All right. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Our great Father, we have a long text and some hard things. And we are tired and weary and distracted. And we need your help. We always need your help. Would you be kind to work by your Spirit? Show us great things, hopeful things, beautiful things, things of your love in this, in this Word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hard question. Hard question. Maybe the hardest question today. Not intelligently, but personally. Here you go. Uh, What's the most helpless thing you've ever seen? Or the most helpless personal situation in which you've ever seen a person? I'll give you a second to think about it. It's probably not pleasant. That's why I said it's hard. All right. So as usual, I win. I've got, I've got worse ones, probably. This is the product of living longer. Anyway, um, so here you go. Well, some, some of you in the medical profession, I get it. But I doubt you all do me. Here we go. Uh, first, I have seen four children born. You know, they're pretty helpless. I mean, they can't even get out, really, on their own. Um, pretty helpless. If you didn't know that, it's sort of true. Uh, I've also seen someone die. Uh, end of life. You know, and there's nothing that can be done. They can't do anything about it. No one else can do about it. You see them take their last breath. Everything that had worked for so long ceases to work. Man, what a picture of helplessness, right? And you being helpless, you can't do anything about it. Someone you love is dead. So I think, like, objectively, those, those sort of win. That's the most helpless. But the, the one that sticks with me the most probably wasn't actually the most helpless, but certainly feels like it. And here's that story. So uh, a long time ago, when I was about your age, I went on my first missions trip, uh, overseas anyway. And uh, I went to a part of the world where, because I am who I am and look the way I look, I looked like a bank, I suppose, because everyone wanted money. Little did they know, I was a college student, and I didn't have any money at all, none. And, uh, you know, when you're 19 and everyone's asking you for money and you can't help, and you're not a person of great character, and I wasn't at the time. I was growing. Man, you can get really impatient. I was being asked for money about every one minute for hours on end. People were trying to sell me belts that would not fit halfway around my waist. Like, it's like, just leave me alone. And uh, at one given point, I'm walking down the sidewalk, and yet someone else asked me for money really loudly. And impatiently, I turn around, and there's no one behind me. And I look beside me, and there's no one there. And I happened to look down, and what I see was utterly, I don't even have a word for it. I still don't have a word for it. I've been thinking about it for over 20 years. I don't have a word for it. Helpless. There was a man on the ground with no arms and no legs. Just a, a trunk and a head. <laughs> Helpless. I mean, he was helpless. 
And I was helpless. I literally had no idea what to do or how to help in any way. Uh, you know, I'm somewhat convinced. Some people say, man, you're so cynical, you're so pessimistic. No, I'm not. I'm just being realistic. Uh, we're pretty much born helpless and we pretty much die helpless. That's the way it is. And in between, we generally feel pretty good about ourselves that we can do everything. Might be a little diluted in that. Um, we typically think we can do anything we want. We don't really, I think we live in denial about how helpless we are until we suffer or someone we really love suffers and we can't help them. So, uh, you know, maybe you've got a depressed friend and you can't do any, I mean, you've tried everything, but you cannot lift them out of the lies. You can't lift them out of the funk. You would do anything to do so, but you can't get them out. Maybe it's an addicted family member and you would love nothing more than to give them new hearts and new habits and new affections, but you can't get them to stop abusing and killing themselves. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a dying family member, a dying grandparent, and you can't do anything but watch them go. I hate to be so dour. Um, but then again, it could be you. Maybe you have a stubborn, broken body that's just never worked the way it's supposed to. Maybe you have a stubborn, broken head that just can't get out of the funk of depression. Maybe you have a sin-addicted heart that just can't stop doing things you hate. We are broken people living in a broken world. That's the reality. We're broken people living in a broken world. Things aren't as bad as they could be. We aren't as bad as we could be. I'm not saying that. But man, it is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're not the way we're supposed to be. And we know that. So how do you live in a world like that? That's the question. How do you live in a world like that? And you could say, I hate this phrase. I hate this phrase. You could say, it is what it is. Whoever said that the first time, I'd like to find that person. And, uh, and, uh, and therefore, you can embrace it and live selfishly and cynically, uh, which a lot of people do. But I think there's every reason to think that we can actually see the world as it really is and still be hopeful, hopeful and even joyful. And we're going to see in Acts 3 tonight that uh, the reason we can do so is because Jesus restores the helplessly broken. All right? The reason we can live with joy and hope is because Jesus restores the helplessly broken. We're going to look at how he restores broken bodies and broken hearts and even a broken world. All right? Let's start with broken bodies. Now, our story starts in, uh, you know, verse 1 here at 3 in the afternoon. In Jerusalem, this is the time of afternoon prayer. And the temples where everybody goes. If you are someone collecting alms, this is the mall at Christmas time for the Salvation Army. This is where you want to go at the right time. And so this man is brought to the temple at the time of prayer because this is the best time for business, it would seem. And he is collecting money. We have here uh, uh, someone, he's never named, in verse 2, who is broken-bodied from birth. We learn later, chapter 4, that uh, he's over 40 years old. So, you know, if, if your body doesn't work since birth for 40 years, yeah, well, PT is probably not going to fix that. There's, there's no rehab. What? I can't read lips. 
Probably not like PT is great. I love PT. But if your body has literally never done that thing, it's going to be really, really, really hard for you to, to learn how to do something that uh, your body has never done. Yeah. This is not rehab. This is not recovery. This is covery. You've never done it before. This is not rehab. This is hab. You've never had it. So don't promise something here. You can't. Anyway. So, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, this guy has long ago given up hope of being you know, a walker, a contributor to society, to all the things that would have been normal at that day and time. Uh, he's carried there. He can't get there. He's dependent. In some ways, he's helpless. And uh, he's left at the gate. Uh, he can't even get in. And part of that's the Old Testament law. He's not allowed in. As someone who's crippled, he's not permitted in. He's, if you will, if the temple spiritually is your home, he's homeless. I mean, he's not allowed in with the family that worships the Lord. So he's broken-bodied, and he's asking for alms, making a living. I, I don't know that he's not working for someone else. They could be treating him like a commodity. He is literally the Salvation Army bell they're ringing. His job is to raise alms. And uh, in verse 3, Peter and John are entering the temple, and uh, this broken-bodied man asks for alms. Maybe he just sees Peter and John as money givers. And... Uh, Nevertheless, verse 4, we see Peter looks at him. And uh, it would seem really sees him. And then asks for his attention. Hey, look at me as well. It's pretty interesting. You might not make a big deal about that. But I am convinced in all my living in Pittsburgh and the way we treat each other on the streets, which I sort of usually don't mind, especially in the winter. Like during the winter on the streets of Pittsburgh, you're allowed to not acknowledge your own mother if you pass one another. Head down, hood on. You just walk past everyone. No one seems to care. And this is great for all the students that came to RUF like two times their freshman year. And when they see me on the street, want to act like they've never seen me in their life. This happens a lot, actually. <laughs> it's like, oh, you don't have to come. All you got to do is acknowledge I'm a human. I don't get that either. But anyway, the, um, I understand. I understand. But um, we, don't, we don't even acknowledge people sometimes. We don't even really see people. I mean, just think about how often you don't even see people that you live with on your floor. You just walk right by them without even acknowledging them. We do this to people that are homeless on the streets all the time here. And I'm fairly convinced that there are people that walk by this guy every day, whether they drop money or not, who never look at him. They don't even think of him as a human being. But Peter does. Peter treats him like a person, like someone created in God's image with dignity. He engages him. And, uh, and then he heals him. In verses 6 and 7, Peter admits, like, I don't have any cash. Um, I don't have silver or gold. Uh, I have something better. And he, and he heals him. He takes him by his hand and raises him up. And verse 7 tells us his feet and ankles were made strong. This broken body is restored. And I want to take this occasion make a little mini-sermon on something, which is the fact that God cares about our bodies. The whole story of the Bible regarding our bodies is actually pretty straightforward. He created our bodies, and when he did so in the early chapters of Genesis, when he was done on that day, he looked and said, it's very good. This is important because we live in a culture that currently says that our religion thinks bodies are bad. No, 
we think what we often do with our bodies is bad. But we don't think the bodies are bad. God created them good, so they are good. Uh, they're so good that Jesus wasn't afraid to take flesh. One of the old hymns puts it this way. He despised not the virgin's womb. Jesus was willing to become one of us. And once he began his ministry, we saw his care for bodies. He, he healed the lame. Simon Peter's mother, mother had a, a fever, for goodness sakes, and he went out of his way to heal a fever. It was, you know, she probably had like the stomach flu. And yet it makes the Bible. It's in, it's in the Gospel of Mark. She had a fever. Okay, we'll fix that. He cared about bodies and broken bodies. He addressed it. And, uh, and he did this all the way through his ministry. He, he loves our bodies so much that uh, he promises that when it's all done, he's not just going to ditch them. You know, it's all going to be dust. I live across from a cemetery. You haven't given it much thought. It doesn't take very much time for you to become dust. Okay? But resurrection means he comes back for the dust. That, that means in the end, when he brings everything together, he wants you as you were created, all of you, back together like you were supposed to be. That's how much God cares about your bodies. He's not just going to take some little spiritual part of you forever. No, he wants all of you, including your bodies. That's how much he cares about our bodies. Um, he loves our bodies so much, he gave us a day of rest. He actually commanded it. We're the ones that choose not to rest. Right? He loves our bodies. I'm not sure we do. He loves our bodies so much, he gave us natural appetites and food to eat. We're the ones that choose not to eat. Right? I am convinced God loves our bodies much more than we do. God loves our bodies. We use our bodies. And I just want to simply make a point, my friends, especially if you're Christians. Your body's not all your own. It belongs to him as well. Are you loving your body like Jesus loves your body? Are you taking care of it? Are you a good steward of it? Well, once this man is healed, um, we see that he's much more than a body. He was made to worship, and he begins to worship. He's jumping, he's dancing, he's praising. Um, yeah, you read this and I feel like it's halftime of a basketball. He's just leaping everywhere. He's quite a distraction, I'm sure. Um, but, but we see that his, his body, his person, was created to worship, and he's praising God. And altogether, the impression is this man has an all-new life now. And the crowds see it, and they wonder, what in the world has happened? What happened here? Who did this? And Peter seems to have really strong trolling abilities. He's like, what are you talking about? Oh, 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 I didn't do this. It wasn't me. Not by my power. Uh, no, this was Jesus. And the good news for the people he's talking to is that Jesus also restores broken hearts. This is important because when he says Jesus, they most likely thought, oh no, not that Jesus. Because only, you know, two months before now, uh, they had overseen his death. And, and Jesus doesn't take very long to get to this point. That they are really guilty. That they are really guilty. In verses 14 to 16, he's like, yeah, that, that Jesus. And this is Jerusalem where Jesus spent time, where he did his ministry, where only less than two months earlier, the, the crowds spurred on by the leaders 
had, had seen that Jesus was put to death. As Peter puts it, yeah, he was the righteous and holy one. You decided you'd rather have a murderer. That's in the Gospels. Well, we'd rather have that guy, Barabbas. You know, we know he killed people, but we'd rather have him. And Jesus is saying, you know Jesus was, you know Jesus was righteous. Pilate himself who oversaw it is like, this man's done nothing wrong. But it, they went with it anyway. Uh, Peter, you know, sharpening the knives, sticks them in and turns a little bit, says, yeah, he was the author of life. He, he created and sustained all things. When he came, everything he did was for life. He was healing the lame. He was teaching people how to love. Yeah, uh, the author of life, you, you killed him. That's what you did. You're really guilty. Whether you feel like it or not, you're really guilty. And, and, and Peter's just making the point that they're morally culpable. They really are guilty in this regard. And, uh, you know, if you read through the rest of the Bible and you have what I would call a biblically informed anthropology, which is to say, you understand what humans are like, you would probably come to the conclusion that if we were in their shoes, we probably would have done the same thing. We probably would have done the same thing. And uh, if all this talk about sin and guilt makes you uncomfortable, well, I understand. It's not very popular. But Jesus also talked about it all the time. There's a story really early in his ministry where Jesus encounters a paralytic, someone that can't walk. And the first thing Jesus says to him, the very first thing, the nerve of it is, son, your sins are forgiven. That is, when Jesus was encountered with someone who could not walk, he, he dealt with the first problem first, the big problem first, which was, you're really guilty. There's something broken with your heart. Let me address that first, and then I'll heal your body, which is what Jesus did. And everywhere in the Bible, and in Jesus' life and here with Peter, Peter is saying, our hearts are broken, we're really guilty before God. The good news is, and we see it right here in our text, is there's grace for guilt. There's grace. He invites them in verse 19 to repent, to turn. We'll talk about that in a moment. That your sins may be blotted out. That means to cover, to erase. And uh, the reality is we try to hide them, try to manage them. In in the great internet browser hiding incognito page of of the world and our personal lives, we're always trying to hide what's really going on. But only Jesus can make it disappear. A really interesting thing about this text, if you read through it again, some of you are thinking, I'll never do that again. If you read through this text again, look at all the different things that Jesus is called. It's called a prophet. It's called the Christ, which means the king. But he's also called the servant. Okay, this is the son of God who now sits at the right hand of the father in heaven. He's the king. And two times he's called a servant. That's pretty Anyone else find that in? at least moderately strange, is really strange. You don't call kings that are risen from the ground to the eternal throne. You don't call them servant. He's called servant twice here. And Peter's making it pretty clear that Jesus is officially acting as a special kind of servant that's alluded to in the Old Testament. It's called the suffering servant. And this is what the suffering servant does. It's really important. For uh, the people he's talking to, and it's really important for us. A couple of verses. Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he'll see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his own soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, we've heard that, right? The righteous one, we just read it. Jesus is the righteous one. My servant make many to be counted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. The way our guilt is blotted out, the way God takes care of our guilt is he blots it out in his servant, Jesus. Uh, about a decade ago, this robber uh, walked into a store, the JNL Market in Massachusetts, and pulled a knife on Ron Rodriguez. It was a really bad idea to pull a knife on Juan Rodriguez, who had been owner of the JNL Mart for 22 years. So when the knife was pulled on him, he calmly reached behind the counter and pulled out a baseball bat. And, you know, don't bring a knife to a baseball bat fight. Baseball bat fight. So uh, he chases him out, and uh, Juan Rodriguez is beloved in the neighborhood, which means when the neighbors found out what happened, they cornered the thief and began to beat him to death. At which point, someone comes flying in and jumps on top of the thief. And he's being beaten, and it's Juan Rodriguez, who jumps on top of the thief to cover him, to protect him. You know, you just put a knife on him a minute ago, and now he's protecting you. Friends, this is a picture of what Jesus does for us. By nature, we deny him. We would kill the author of life. And he covers us and takes the punishment that's due us. There's grace for our guilt because Jesus bears it. There's something else here that I really want you to see because I I can feel it from you. It's your weariness. Uh, We're really guilty, but we're really weary as well. Part of the nature of the broken heart is we're always trying to do two things at once. If you're here for very long, you hear me say this all the time. We're always trying to do whatever we want to do that makes us happy and to justify ourselves before God. So, I will do whatever makes me happy, which is sin, usually. And, at the same time, I want to do enough good things where I feel like God still likes me and approves of me. That's called living two lives. Two. And some of you know, or maybe you haven't been honest with yourselves, you know you're living two lives. You've been living two lives. And there's a word for that. There's a lot of words for that, actually. Duplicity, hypocrisy. I'm not going to say all those words. There's another word for it I want you to know. It's exhausting. It's wearying. What you're trying to do is find life, joy, purpose, meaning out there all the time. You're thirsty. Give it to me. I've got to find something. And so you're desperately looking for what makes you happy. Right? At the same time, you're trying to justify yourself before God while carrying all this guilt and shame. You haven't gotten rid of it. I mean, you're doing things that give you guilt and shame. And you haven't gotten rid of the guilt and shame. And it's exhausting. It is wearying. And Peter here says, man, there's grace for that too. There's grace given for refreshment. He says in verse 20 that times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. When we turn to Jesus, he grants us grace for refreshment that uh, God will be with us and at work in us, turning our hearts, that we won't any longer desire the wearying, wicked things that we think will give us life that actually sap all our joy and give us guilt and shame. Instead, 
He'll draw us to himself. Um, preachers like preacher stories, although we recognize that no one else would like preacher stories. But I'm going to tell this one anyway. Um, I can't remember which preacher told me this story. Um, but this guy, having finished a message, realized that this one guy who often came because he had to but never paid attention was focused and attentive the whole time. And when the message was over, the student ran up and said, uh, I need to talk to you. And, and the pastor uh, just naturally asked, what did I say that so affected you? And the student looked at him, and he was still deeply affected, and sort of like shake off the fog of what had happened spiritually. He's like, oh, uh, it wasn't anything you said. It was, it was that... It was that song we sang at the beginning. And, and it, was a, it was the words of a psalm. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Just those honest words like, that explained his existence. I am so thirsty. I am so weary and exhausted. I am looking everywhere for life and I cannot find it. And the psalmist is like, yeah, me too. That's exactly what it's like. I'm so thirsty and tired. But what I really want is you, God. And Jesus promises that when we turn to us, turn to him, he will give us refreshment. The invitation here is uh, not one we would naturally like. It's the word repent. Repent, which means to turn to him, and he'll give us grace for our guilt and grace for our weariness. And that is true whether you're doing it for the very first time. You're not a Christian. You're like, man, I am so tired of the way I'm trying to live. Two lives at once. Can't make it work. Or whether it's you for the one millionth time. We find freedom, a new life, and refreshment when we turn to Him. Well, I have another point, and I'm almost out of time. So I'm going to make this last point in three minutes. You can tie me. Okay. It's the biggest point, but the smallest. Ready? It said Jesus is also out to restore a broken world. Broken bodies, broken hearts, broken world. Uh, we have a promise here in verse 20 of restoration. That, that Jesus will come and restore all things. That is, um, he's not out just to rescue his people from a broken world so we can all survive together and have a good time while the world burns out there. No, he actually is invested in the world. He created it. He cares for it. At a time in the future, we don't know exactly when, he's going to come back and set all the broken things right. He loves the world. He created enough where he's going to come back and fix all the broken things. Judgments rendered, tears wiped away. As uh, as uh, Tolkien's character Sam puts it at the end of the of the book, will everything sad, is it going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Scripture's answer is yes. All the sad things will be undone. That's what God has promised. And, uh, and we wait for that time. The question you might want to ask is like, well, how can I know that's actually going to happen? How do I actually know that he's going to come back and restore all things? And here is where football can really help us. Okay. Who is the all-time leader of fourth-quarter comebacks? Incorrect. <laughs> yeah, if he, if he played for another 45 years, he might be. Well, he's only going to play in the playoffs in the last three games of every season, so not likely. 
I'm sorry. I'm still a little bitter. I'm a Vikings fan. They beat us like dead horse last year. All right. Um, Brett Favre. No. Peyton Manning. It's only because you have indie, an indie heart. Anyway, Peyton Manning led 43 fourth quarter comebacks. It's pretty amazing. Yep. And uh, so this is a big, this might be the biggest imaginative stretch I've ever asked this group. Imagine you're a football player. <laughs> Yikes. And uh, it's the fourth quarter and you're down six. 142 left on the clock. And uh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Well, you're anxious. There's only 142 on the clock. No timeouts. And uh, they've been going to go back all night. And we haven't played well. But you have Peyton freaking Manning. He has done this 42 other times. You have every reason to be confident that he can do it again. And based on what he's done in the past, you have every reason to live, hopefully, right now in the moment. And that's Jesus. When Jesus, uh, Peyton Manning said in the huddle, we're going to win this game, you would say, yes, we are. And when Jesus says he's going to restore a broken world, and you look at all he's done, healing broken bodies, restoring broken hearts, you can say, yes, he is. Yes, he is. You can live with hope. I want to make clear one last thing here. That living with hope that Jesus is going to restore a broken world allows you to do something really difficult but important. You can live with hope and hate in the right proper balance. I know you're thinking, hate? Where does that figure in? I don't get it at all. I'm fairly convinced that apathy is a real enemy here. We just don't care that much about a broken world a lot of times. But frankly, there's so much broken in the world, so much evil in the world, so much that ought not to be in the world, that we should frankly be a little angry about it sometimes. Really. We should. Abusive fathers? I mean, racism? Shouldn't you be angry about it? Yes, you should. We should be angry that death takes our loved ones. We should. There are things to be angry about. God's going to come and fix it. And I think instead of just defeatedly shrugging our shoulders at a broken world and broken people, there are things we can hate. We can hate illness. We can hate sin and its effects. We can hate racism. We can hate oppression. We can hate death without becoming hateful because we have hope as well. We have hope as well. We have hope that Jesus is at work, that he's able to heal, that he can change lives, that he can make us loving people. And when, you, when you're able to do that, you're able to do finally... What Peter says here in the last verse or two, which is, you become a blessing. You become a blessing. He says at the very end here that when, when you trust in the promised one, Jesus, you are blessed and you become a blessing to those around you, to a broken world that desperately needs you. And friends, there's a broken world that desperately needs you. All kinds of people from my generation look at your generation and say, you want to save the world, my young idealists? Well, make your bed first. Have you seen this or heard this? I mean, they do this. And I say to them, I'm not going to make my bed. I'm not going to make my bed. Um, but I will say to you, you want to save a broken world? Well, get your broken heart fixed first. I will say that. What the world needs it's people that love like Jesus. People that have hope like Jesus. People that care like him. And you can't do that 
unless you know that love for yourself, unless you know that he's forgiven you and he's giving you refreshment, friends. And he invites you to himself to do that. All right, let's pray. Our great Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that you